Well, perhaps for the final time <laughs> this Christmas season, let me wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for those of you, many of you joining us online from home. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas as well. And uh, hopefully, hopefully this has been an encouraging in some ways, refreshing Christmas season for you. That's not true for all of us, but at least for many of us, hopefully that's the case. And my guess is, also for many of us at some point, thanks Bob, at some point you, you probably spent some time exchanging gifts with friends or family, and perhaps yesterday, and my question to you is, were, were you surprised by anything that you got? Did you, really? I got these new shoes, so I really like them, so that was kind of a... That was a high, yes, hey, taking care of dad, I appreciate it. It's pretty cool to have family members who are now stylish, so uh, <laughs> it's a work of God's grace in my life. And, uh, but how about you, were, were you surprised by anything that you, you got, any gift you opened? Of course, uh, uh, <laughs> surprises with Christmas gifts can come in different forms, can't they? There can be the surprise of opening it and going, oh, that's just what I wanted, or oh my goodness, that's what a great gift, or there can also be the surprise where you open it and you, oh, I hope they pack the gift receipt, so I, right? So I can return it. If that's where you're at, if in any way you were surprised, that, that really does seem appropriate to the Christmas story. If you've been with us at all during this Advent season, we've been in a series entitled Snapshots of Christmas. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at different snapshots, different scenes in the Christmas account and looked carefully at the people involved and even looked in such a way to understand the way uh, the Christmas story now interacts with our life story. And as we've done that, an underlying theme of the Christmas story is really the theme of surprise. Right? I mean, we say, right? Zechariah, right? He's, he's told he, he's going to have a baby. And of course, there's, he, he basically just kind of <laughs> folds his arms at the angelic announcement, you know, like how, that can't happen. And it was a message of surprise. Mary and Joseph, in their own way, have to process the surprise announcement that a child is going to be born. Furthermore, you know, there are those shepherds just out in the fields doing their jobs and all of a sudden their, their work environment, their workplace is, is interrupted with an angelic announcement. And there's a surprise of, of what God is doing. So in so many ways, it seems like the people involved in the Christmas story are surprised by this amazing reality that is now taking place. But as we look at these different scenes, there's one more snapshot that I want us to see. And interestingly, this snapshot, it's, it's different from all the rest. It's, it's different in a couple of ways. First of all, it's, it's really different generationally. I mean, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Mary and Joseph. Mary is arguably 15 or 16 at this time. Joseph would have been older maybe a few years older, but he's still a very young man. So, so much of this Christmas story revolves around this very young couple, but we're going to get to the last scene, really, in the Christmas story. And, and we move from a couple that is very young to two individuals who are very old. 
One of the things I love, this is, this is really the point where the Christmas story becomes multi-generational. It's the point where you see this wonderful interchange where kind of older followers of God are kind of speaking truth into the life of younger followers of God. And even as a church, we want to grow in fostering those kinds of relationships. So this snapshot is different because this, these two individuals are much older. But it, it's, it's also different for a second reason. Because, as I've said, really up to this point, it seems like everyone involved in the story has been surprised, they've been shocked, their lives have been disruptive, disrupted. But when we come to this last snapshot in the Christmas story, we see two people who weren't surprised by any of this. In fact, they were waiting for it. And their names were Simeon and Anna. We're introduced to them as the scene unfolds in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph take this young child to the temple. And we read these words. When the time for the purification rites had come as required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So this young couple is very responsible. They're they're very committed to following God in their faith. And so when Jesus is approximately 40 days old, they take him to the temple. And they take him to the temple for two reasons. First, they're they're acts of purification that follow after childbirth. But secondly, it's an act of dedication to dedicate their firstborn son to God. So they take him to the temple and just envision this large temple complex, right? A, really a tribute to the, <laughs> to the huge ego of Herod the Great and building such a a, a, a tremendous complex, and it's filled with people. And as they move through the crowd, they are approached by these two older individuals, Simeon and Anna. And both of them, both of them, will approach Mary and Joseph with an understanding of who this child actually is. Now let's just kind of step into that scene just a little bit more and then we'll kind of continue reading through the text. But just, just kind of visualize this with me. You know, so here this, this young couple, they've got the baby and they're moving through this large crowd. And, you know, I'm sure some people, you know, you smile, you see a young couple with a baby, you just naturally smile as you pass them by. But, but it's really crowded, and unless you're close, you may not notice them at all. And I'm sure hundreds of people pass them by, moving into this large temple complex, most not even noticing them. Now, now notice the irony here, right? I mean, hundreds, even thousands of people moving in and out of the temple complex that day. All engaged in acts of worship. All pursuing God. Yet except for these two, they're all oblivious to the work of God that's actually taking place 
right in front of their very eyes. Yet these two people, these two older people that we might easily pass by in the street, these two people are clued into what's actually going on. Under the leadership of the Spirit, they realize this is the Messiah. Now, how did that happen? <laughs> why, why did God give them this insight? How did, how did they have the insight that others were missing? If, if I really had to answer that question with only one word, I think it would be this word. Perspective. They, they had a depth of perspective, I think, that had been cultivated over many years of pursuing God, a depth of perspective on who God is and what he's actually doing. And, and in the context of that relationship that had been nurtured over decades with God, God gives them insight as to who this baby actually is. So to see that unfold, let's just kind of look at the first part of this scene. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Now notice the way Simeon is described here, right? He is He's righteous and devout. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I think implied in this is he's a man that has been developing his relationship with God over decades. When he talks about waiting for the consolation of Israel, that's a, that's a theme that reverberates throughout the book of Isaiah. So it just kind of a, it, it clues us into his familiarity with Scripture. And I think it, it also implies that he's, he, he knows the Scriptures. He's been engaging God. He's a man of Scripture and prayer. And likewise, when, we get to, when you look at Anna, she is described intentionally as a person of prayer and fasting. But also, it's not just that he's pursued this relationship as, as he has kind of built into that relationship with God. He's, I think he's also been obedient along the way. That's why he's described as righteous and devout. He's been engaging God and doing what he says. And there have been rhythms of listening and obeying at work in his life. Now, as we've already seen in a real sense, those kinds of traits were already at work in this young couple, right? Mary and Joseph. Even as a teenager, it, it just it seems pretty clear that Mary was, was pursuing God in such a way that when this moment comes, she's ready to lean into taking him in as a word, trusting his promises. Likewise, Joseph is presented to us as, as really a quiet guy, but his relationship with God was such that he has the courage to obey. So in this young couple, we see this desire to really know God and to lean into the fact that he is faithful and are willing to take steps of obedience as they understand what that looks like. And I think in a real sense, when you see these these traits at work in this very young couple. <laughs> when you build on those kinds of traits and patterns of engaging God over time, what you end up with 
are people like Simeon and Anna. Just people that has this deep perspective on who God is and what he's doing. And I think with that just comes wisdom. It comes stability, comes fruitfulness. There's just a rootedness in their lives. I think, I, think you could have, I think you could have just picked up on that, even in a brief conversation with them. There was just something there about how they engaged life that was deeply rooted in their relationship with God, that it affected how they approached life and everything they did. And, and from our perspective, we would say they may not have fully realized it, but they were deeply rooted in the gospel. Now, with that in mind, I just want to remind you again, that as we start the new year, right, I'm going to invite you to join me in certain rhythms. We're going to start, and next week I will introduce this new series on the life of Christ, which really for us is Love This Book Part 3. We're going to be going through the life of Christ together over the next few weeks, and I'll introduce that next week. We've already uh, provided a study guide that you can pick up on your way out, and uh, I'll just remind you of that. But even as we engage God in Scripture over the next few weeks and months together as we go through this series, particularly during three weeks in January, I'm also going to invite you to a season of prayer and fasting as, as we really pray in our church community for, for unity, wisdom, and boldness as we enter this new year. And I think as, as we continue to build these kinds of practices and rhythms in our lives, one of the long-term effects is we will we'll become more and more people like these two. Just with a perspective and approach to life that is stable and rooted and fruitful, an approach to life that is deeply embedded in the reality of who God is and what he's doing and who we are in light of that relationship. So these two had they developed a perspective on the gospel. I think a perspective on who God is and what he's doing. But what exactly did that look like? What did their perspective look like? And we're just going to look at the, the brief conversation that Simeon has with this young couple. But I, I think that, that brief conversation actually gives us several clues to his perspective on who God is and what he's doing, really a perspective on the gospel. And first of all, I think what becomes clear in this interaction is he really understands the breadth of the gospel, right? He understands, wow, this is how all-encompassing this is, how the breadth of this message. To show you what I uh, mean, notice what happens. So, right, God tells him, you need to, you need to go to the temple. So, <laughs> so here's this older guy, you're right in the midst of this crowd, kind of just kind of see him slowly moving through the crowd, and he, he goes up to this couple, and <laughs> he takes this child. That had to be, you know, that'd be a little weird for Mary and Joseph. And then we read this. He starts to pray. Right? He's holding this just little baby, just a little baby. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I'm ready to die, God. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, as, as you hear him pray, again, remember, he's, I think he's, he's, just, he's, he's just deeply steeped in passages from the Hebrew Bible. Among other things, um, the book of Isaiah, right? He's, and, it's, and as he prays, notice he's, he's tapping into this theme that, that Israel's Messiah is also going to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel's Messiah, Israel's Messiah is actually coming to be the savior of the entire world. And we see that this in other places. In, in Isaiah, for instance, I will keep you and you will make you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6. Or Isaiah 52, 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So this is where this, is where this theme is coming from as Simeon prays. But here's... Here's what's fascinating to me. Remember, remember, remember the setting. This is occupied Israel. Occupied by the Roman authorities. And they've just gone through a census where people in Israel have been forced all over the country to fulfill the dictate of an authoritarian pagan ruler. It was a reminder of how irritating it was to be under foreign rule. And that was only complicated by the fact that all the years that Israel was occupied by Rome, the Roman government never really figured out how to rule Israel well. Among other things, they never figured out how do you rule a people that that believe there's only one God. And their, their failure to understand that led to a variety of administrative missteps, which only heightened the tension. And you need to understand that even at the time of Jesus' birth, there was just a simmering undercurrent of frustration and anger. The embers were, were just burning underneath the cultural surface, waiting to be lit. Frustration with Rome. Antagonism about this foreign authority that had occupied their land. I think the Romans understood that this was, a, this was a situation that could go volatile in any moment. This is, among other reasons, why I remember when Jesus is arrested, he's brought before Pilate, and Pilate is in Jerusalem. Now, why is Pilate in Jerusalem at that time, the Roman governor? Because he actually lived by the sea. He lived in a place called Caesarea by the sea, the Roman capital of Israel. Well, he was in Israel for this reason. It was a Jewish festival, Passover, and it would have brought tens of thousands to people to Jerusalem. And the Romans were always aware that when, when people in Israel gathered together, the littlest thing could ignite those embers into full-scale insurrection and revolt. So, so even now, as Jesus is born right below the surface, There's this frustration. We're under the thumb of Rome. 
And with that in mind, it would have been natural as Simeon prays for him just to say, God, thank you for sending the consolation of Israel. Thank you for sending the deliverer of Israel. And he says that. But notice he also acknowledges and he will be a light to the Gentiles. And, and what this is showing is, his, you know, as he, had kind of, kind of, as he had been shaped by this understanding of who God is and what he's doing, really as he had been shaped by the gospel, he was coming to grips with the breadth of the gospel and how Christ was coming for all peoples. And how Christ would ultimately bring about transformation in the lives of all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds in all sorts of places. And here's why I think we need to pay attention to this. For those of us who are followers of Christ, I think we, we have to be attuned to the truth that in some ways our culture is becoming more pluralistic. And with that, in different ways, more antagonistic at times to Christianity. And given that dynamic, it is natural and easy for us to become more fearful, more defensive. But if we're not careful, what we do in that process is we shrink the mission. And in essence, we shrink the gospel. God, you have come to save us. You have come to deliver us. You have come to protect us. And we lose, we lose sight of the gospel's breadth. We lose sight of the reality he has drawn people from all sorts of backgrounds into his plan through the work of his spirit and the power of the gospel. I can think of just about a couple of times where I've kind of had to come to grips, right? You know, where, where my understanding of the gospel has had to be stretched. I remember the first time I developed a good friendship with another Christian who had very different political views than I did. And, and we, had some, we had some great conversations and uh, he continues to be a friend. He's a pastor in Maine. And, but certain political issues, we just looked at very differently. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I always thought people like you weren't Christians. <laughs> right? And, and I'm like, oh, you know, my understanding of the breadth of the gospel was stretched. Because even though we disagreed on certain issues, what, what we had in common was the good news of Christ. And that dwarfed the differences. Here's a second example where I was really stretched in my understanding of the gospel. In some ways, you know, I, I, I probably started following the news and international developments uh, with the Iranian hostage crisis, 19, hostage crisis, 1979 to 1981. I was a teenager then, and that was maybe the first major news story that I followed carefully. And, you know, I kind of remember being drawn into that, and I remember, you know, as an American... I remember the emotions and the anger associated with that experience. But what I didn't know is less than 15 years later after that, I would have a mentor in my life who was Iranian. And I could go into the story in more detail if you ever want to hear it, but I would just say, this guy really was an agent of grace in my life during a hard season of my life. 
And uh, he had just this amazing story of how he had become a follower of Jesus coming out of that cultural background and what that had looked like. But for, for a season, his, I mean, his input in my life was just absolutely necessary and so significant. And, and, and whoever knew, I'd have a mentor who was Iranian. You see, that's the, that's the, these, these are just signs of the breadth of the gospel. And I think Simeon, Simeon was clued into that. And I think as, as a result, as we seek to follow Christ, as, as we seek to grow in this relationship, as the gospel takes root in our lives, in different ways it's going to move us outwardly because there's a breadth to it. It will move us towards others. And if instead I'm kind of moving in a more self-focused, self-protective direction, I think I'm, I'm losing sight of the breadth of the gospel. So I think part of Simeon's perspective that's been shaped over years and decades of following God, of pursuing him, of these rhythms of listening and obeying, part of it is perspective is he understood the breadth of the gospel. But not only, not only did he understand the breadth of the gospel, he also understood its depth, right? So here he is. Here they are, this couple and this old, you know, old guy who just comes and takes his baby and he starts praying. And I'm sure maybe at this point the couple, their, their eyes are just big. And they, you know, he, he prays these beautiful words to God about this child, the fulfillment of God's promises, the Isaiahic vision of a coming king. And then, and then he turns to Mary. And we read this. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the failing and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Not only does he understand really the breadth of the gospel, how it's going to kind of move across people groups and into the lives of different people, but he also understands the depth of the gospel and in understanding the depth of the gospel he understands that this is a message that will cause conflict among people i mean yes he understood all of us in israel were waiting for the messiah but he understood that well when the messiah actually comes many will reject that message Many will choose not to put their faith and trust in him. It will cause conflict. It will cause conflict among people. And I think for us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to to understand that. The message, the movement that we are a part of causes conflict. So don't be surprised by that. Now, this is not an excuse to be a jerk, right? Right? Because sometimes, as Christians, we are needlessly offensive. But even when we're not, we need to understand the message still will be a stumbling block and offense to others. Even though we are called to be peacemakers, we must recognize that the message of Jesus brings conflict. And that's part of the journey of following Christ. We, just, we can't 
We can't be surprised by that or knocked off course by that. The, the gospel brings conflict among people. But furthermore, and this is, and again, I think Simeon just has this great insight of understanding the depth of the gospel. Not only does the gospel bring conflict among people, the gospel also brings conflict within people. Again, he continues talking to Mary, and you get these fascinating words. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Wow. Now think about this, this young teenage girl, and all of a sudden this wise, older, older leader speaks into her and says, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Now what, what does that mean? Well, I think on one level, it's an acknowledgement of the pain that Mary will experience watching her own son, son die on a cross. But I think on another level, it's an acknowledgement of at times the internal pain or stress, the internal conflict that comes in our lives as God works within us. Let let me just give you one example from Mary's life. In in John chapter 2, you've got this interesting scene, right? It's a wedding feast at Cana, and uh, the wedding party's about to run out of wine. And you need to understand, in that cultural context, major social taboo. You don't want to do that. So Mary goes to Jesus, and she goes kind of with the expectation. She wants him to be aware of this, and undoubtedly her expectation is you can do something about it, right? And Jesus rebukes her. And sometimes I think when you read this, it's like, wow, rebuking your mom? Really? Right? You know? I mean, was that necessary? She just asked, you know, she's just coming to you for help. And, and And he rebukes her, and then he says... He says, my hour has not yet come. Now pay attention to that because that that language of Christ's hour becomes an important theme in John's gospel. And it it really kind of refers to Christ's work in in its fullness, the, the work of the cross, but the glory of the cross and the power of the resurrection. So even though this rebuke may seem harsh, here's what I think, here's what I think Jesus was was telling Mary. Here's the message he was trying to get across. Mary, I know you want me to step in and do something for this immediate problem. And I will do that. In fact, what does he do? He turns the water into wine. He addresses the immediate problem. But Mary, you also need to understand that ultimately my mission, my work, is to do something much deeper. I'm more than a miracle worker who can do party tricks at a wedding. I have come in the power of God to bring about radical transformation in the lives of his people. I have come to restore and renew and forgive. So Mary, I I will do this. And I will solve this immediate problem. But you need to understand my mission. And the lives of people is much deeper than that. And Mary, that includes you as well. Because you see, in the course of her life, she's having to come to grips with the reality of what his message and what his methods mean and the way he is coming as a Messiah. And at times, that's hard to deal with. 
it's hard to fully comprehend. And the truth is, and we have to acknowledge this, sometimes God's work is really painful in our lives. Sometimes it feels like we're really wrestling with God. And the truth is, at times, he is using our circumstances, our interactions to expose our idols. At times, he is using those circumstances and interactions to to stretch us, to help take uh, next steps in following him. But, but sometimes those steps are really hard. Sometimes it feels like we're being pushed out of our area of comfort. We're being pushed out of our status quo. But that's part of his work, the work of the gospel. You know, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll just come back to it. You know, even over the last two years, at times, this has just been part of my frustration. I mean, even, even around here at church, you know, we try to... We try to make wise decisions. I realize sometimes it doesn't seem like we've done that. And it's like you go through a decision-making process. You involve different people. And, and you kind of feel like you come out at the other end and making a wise decision. And then right when you made a decision, it's like, and then the circumstances change. COVID wins again. And I feel like, now I look like an idiot. You know, if, now, if you'd been in all those conversations, you'd understand how we got here, but, but all the things around us change, and now you're kind of struggling, and, and that's just been part of our journey. And sometimes I've just wanted to throw up my hands, it's like, I give up. How do, you know, how, do you, how, do you, how do you make wise choices? How do you plan ahead in this situation? It's just been really frustrating. And yet, I must acknowledge for me, and maybe you felt this at well, as well, at times it feels like, God's been doing a deeper work. Because at times for me, control can be an idol. I like having things all figured out. And at times, as much as I want to have a grip on what's going on around me, I I, I have have to learn to hold life more loosely. But can I be honest with you? Even as a pastor, I know I'm, you know, I'm paid to do this, right? You know, right? Even as a pastor, sometimes going from this to this is painful. And it hurts. But it's part of God's transforming work. Along those lines, I've always appreciated um, a, a part of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity where he writes these things. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. 
And maybe, maybe, maybe some of you, this is kind of, yeah, George, this is, this is kind of where I feel right now. I know we, we talk a lot about kind of living in God's grace and it, <laughs> right now it kind of feels like I'm in, I'm in the grip of God's grace, but it's a vice grip, right? And it hurts and it's painful. And yet when we, when we understand the breadth and the depth of the gospel, we realize that at times God uses these places in our lives to do his deep work. And even though it feels painful at the time, it can, it can ultimately bring freedom and transformation. And it's how you end up with two older people walking into the temple complex, surrounded by religious busyness and religious activity. But they, they have a perspective that something deeper is at work. They have a stability, a rootedness, a fruitfulness that comes from understanding the depth and the breadth of the gospel. And I think that's, that's a lesson we can take with us as we move into the new year. As we do that individually, as we do it corporately as a church community. So with that in mind, let me, let me just close our time together this morning. And what I want to do is just pray for us. You know, we've, in, over the last few weeks, we've celebrated the gift of Jesus. We have celebrated the birth of our King. And even as we've done that, we, we've also looked at snapshots, different moments in the Christmas story. And we've, we've learned from, from these people kind of what the journey of following God can look like from different perspectives. And I think these are lessons we can carry, carry with us as we start 2022. So with that in mind, let me, can I pray for us as we close? Let me just, let's, let me, join me in prayer right now. So gracious God, as this Christmas season draws to a close, I can thank you for the reminder of the gift of Jesus Christ. This week, as maybe some of us, we're going to get back to work. Things are going to start to kind of return to the pre-holiday normality and things will change. The Christmas decorations at some point will come down. But in the midst of that, I pray that of Jesus Christ, we've been reminded of the truth that the birth of this baby was also the arrival of a king coming to bring about forgiveness, renewal, new life transformation. And Father, I also pray that as we've revisited the Christmas story, that there are lessons that we take with us from the people that were involved. I think about Mary and her willingness to, to, to lean into the truth that you're faithful to your promises and to embrace that and to engage that. I think about the courage of Joseph to, to, in, to, in, to enthusiastically welcome this message and, and seek to be obedient in a variety of different ways. And Father, I thank you that even as we continue the Christmas story, those rhythms of listening and obeying over time produced people like Simeon and Anna, who in the midst of the chaos and surprise of this Christmas season, were not surprised at all because they were deeply rooted in a perspective shaped by the good news of what you were doing. So, Father, may, may we recognize that you, you're, 
You're showing us these people to invite us onto the same journey that they were on. Father, I, I pray for us as we now enter the new year. I pray for us as we begin this new series and really seek to understand who Jesus was as we trace his life story. And Father, I pray this is, this is a good time for us just to make sure we're engaging you in your word if we're not doing so already. So I pray that we're going to be willing to kind of follow along as we go through these passages together to interact with you in scripture. And I also pray that even as we're doing that, that during the season of prayer and fasting, that we're going to be open to building these kind of rhythms into our life just to make space for you to be at work. Because, Father, as we start this new year, there are ways in which you want the good news of Christ to work its way deeper into our lives in 2022. And there are ways in which you want that reality of the gospel to work its way deeper into the life of our church community. And Father, we want, we want to be united around your gospel. We want to have wisdom to understand next steps that we take, even as we've had to deal with all these unexpected circumstances. And Father, we want to have the boldness necessary to obey. So Father, again, we celebrate the work of Christ, and we thank you for the Christmas story. And now we, may we... May we take those lessons with us as we start a new year. May this be a year that we will one day look back on and say, I, 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 I saw the work of God, the gospel in my life. And I saw the work of the gospel in my church. Father, may we join you in what you are doing as we enter this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, thanks for being with us this morning. Some of you are new to our church, so I just want to thank you for that. And, and even as you go, if you, if you have something you would like to pray with one of us about, members of our prayer team are going to be here at the front. And if we can encourage you, pray with you, we want to do that. And now as you leave, may, may you see that there are lessons from the Christmas story that we can take into 2022. So I started by saying Merry Christmas, and now I will close by saying Happy New Year, and I look forward to seeing you in 2022. Amen.